Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Hardly Flowering. It's me, Catherine, and today I'm going to talk about slash rant on slash reflect on um, a poetry workshop that I went to. It was online, obviously, because no one leaves their house anymore, but it was hosted by Jericho Brown, the American poet, um, and it was like run by, I guess, facilitated by... Amherst College, so they're the ones who are in charge of this. And I just attended, but I have a lot of thoughts on it, so that is what you're going to hear today. Okay, so um, I'm gonna move all these papers which I have here. Sorry about that. I have to find, I've realized that I, I love things on paper, and in order for me to actually speak coherently, I can't be reading notes off of a screen or a phone or, like any, it, it should not turn on, or I, I can't use it. Um, but also paper is super noisy, so I'm sure you're going to just hear my papers rattling, because today I have several pieces of paper. Um, not only my notes, but actually I printed out sources, so we're like getting fancy over here on Hardly Flowering. But to return to the topic at hand, this poetry workshop, um, as I said in the intro, was run by Jericho Brown, and he basically took us through the sort of standard poetry workshop stuff. You get to know each other, you do your exercises, and that part was kind of straightforward. But what was interesting, what I actually really liked and enjoyed about this workshop, was getting to see his creative process and the way he works through the act of writing a poem. Um, I mean, as you know, I not only read and love a lot of poetry, but I attempt to write it on a pretty regular basis, like at least three times a week. So it's always really exciting to see someone else's process and how they do things and how they think about things. But okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll focus on that. So the way that he went through his process was he would have, he would write a word on his little word doc, which was the whiteboard, I guess like up and then you have to think of the opposite which is down and then he would think of you know if and then the opposite might be not or whatever you think the opposite is and some of them are words that don't have opposites necessarily like because and I guess you could say like nor or a word like run stop jump fall but then people think of really different ones that aren't obvious to you at all like I don't know what's the opposite of if weather that's the same it's like hard to think of these ones. Like, what's the opposite of tree? And I mean, obviously it doesn't have an opposite, but you're working with the poetic thing. The opposite of tree, I don't know, grass? Or is it paper? Like a tree that's been dead? Or is it log? Or is it sky? Or is it ground? Like you can think of a, a, a rationale for almost any of those. But that's the kind of warm up exercise that he did. And then he had us do that to a very short poem. Um, and basically you just write the opposite of every word and you end up with this absolute jumble of garbage, which he calls the mess of text. And then from that, you write it backwards and then you write, read it again and then you write it forwards and then you take the lines, you kind of make it grammatical because it usually isn't at that point. And then you take the most important line and you put it at the top. Well, no, the most important line goes at the bottom. The second most important line goes at the top, and then the rest you arrange associatively in the middle. And so it's a really interesting approach, but 
as I was going looking at this, it just really bothered me and it reminded me, and I think this is where we're going to get into my rant and actual point of the day, um, but it was astonishing how this this process, it presupposes so much about poetry. The idea of what poetry is, what a poet's role is, how you create something, the human creative act, and all of the, the presuppositions built into a process like this were the exact opposite of what I would do. I would say they were like alien to me. Um, and I think the reason is because I would have a very different definition of poetry and a very different philosophical view of what art and the artist is and the relationship between the artist and art than um, someone like Jericho Brown would. So I am just going to reflect on what it seems to me his philosophical point would be, though he didn't tell me that, obviously. I just heard what he was doing in the workshop and extrapolated it, and then I'm going to supply my own counterpoint. Brief pause, though. I think this is... Okay, wow. Sorry for that brief interruption, uh, but turns out my microphone was not working or not working very well, so there's definitely going to be a period in the middle of that where I kind of fade out, but I don't want to record it again, so <laughs> I'm not going to. Instead, I'm just going to pick up where I left off, which was somewhere around the mess of text. I will see in the editing whether that's actually where I need to come back to. Ah, well, anyway. So, oh yeah, <laughs> I remember where I was. It was when I was talking about Jericho Brown's like approach um, to the poet and the creative act. So, as I was listening to him, it reminded me of this um, book that I've heard of, and I, I've not read the whole thing, not gonna lie, but I've read part of it and a lot of articles about it. Um, and it's called Infinity and the Mind by Rudy Rucker. Um, and basically in this book, there's lots of ideas in it, but one of the ones that Rucker talks about is the idea of a mindscape. And it's, a, it's part of this big philosophical conversation, which I will not go into. Um, but right now, for the purposes of this, all we need to know is that he thinks that... Uh, there's this mental space in which all thoughts already exist before you think them. And when you are thinking something, you're actually just occupying that part of the mental space, which is what he's calling the mindscape. So here's a quote from his book. He says, all thoughts are already there in this multidimensional space, which we might as well call the mindscape. Our bodies move about in the physical space called the universe. Our consciousnesses move about in the mental space called the mindscape. All right, and then he goes on about um, how when you're thinking a thought, you're occupying that spot in the mind space, and when someone else is thinking that thought, they can be there in that place with you. Is That's his idea. So if I'm thinking about, I don't know, the quadratic formula, I don't know why I'd be thinking about that. I don't enjoy this thought. Um, but for whatever reason, I'm thinking about that, and you are a student in class with me, and you are also thinking about it because we're solving the same problem. We're occupying the same place in the mindscape, according to Rucker, that the same place, which is the place of the quadratic formula, which kind of exists there. And the way that Rucker talks about occupying the space of an idea, you're kind of finding it. You're not, 
thinking of ideas in the way that we talk about it kind of intuitively. He's formulating it to the saying that you've come across this idea which already always existed in this mind space and would have existed if no one else had thought of it. So this is a kind of a, I don't know, to me it sounds very much like a platonic idea where you have the form of everything existing in this third realm and then everything is just a shadow of that. But it's it's analogous to that. It's not quite the same thing. But definitely you could draw that comparison. Um, or you could draw the comparison to the more scholastic idea of all I ever sort of like, you know, St. Augustine's always saying, oh, actually he's Neoplatonist, what am I saying? But anyway, like St. Augustine would say that everything exists in the mind of God and we're kind of accessing that in the divine intellect in a very complicated way that he talks about much better than I ever will. We're not going to think about that too much. But the main point is this idea of the mindscape, I think, is kind of what Jericho Brown is talking about when he talks about how he writes poetry. So his idea is that poems and words and associations exist out there and you're just trying to find interesting combinations using the power already inherently in the words. You're just picking up this mess of text which you've kind of found subconsciously through this process of thinking about opposites and similarities and the way words make you feel and you find all these words and they're a big mess and then you kind of put meaning onto them you find the meaning in them but it's almost like um you know those crazy art theories where they just or like you know I don't know, it's very stereotypical, but like think about what everyone thinks they did in the 70s for art, which is just make a lot of little water balloons filled with paint, tape them to a wall, and throw darts and see which ones you hit first or second, but it's completely random. That's kind of his approach to poetry, as I understand it. There's all these words which exist anyway, like the water, like the balloons filled with paint, and you just kind of throw darts with your mind and you think of a word and there it you know you've hit it's like you've hit the paint and the paint kind of splatters down and then you just find another one and you have some more paint splatter down you find another word and that's how the words come together to make a poem and then when you're done you step back and you as the artist are also the viewer like it's sort of as though no one has made the painting chance made it it just happened that way um there's there's not that there's not an intentionality about the work. It's not like you sat down and said, well, I'm going to, I mean, you chose the colors in the balloons, you chose the words, but you didn't really have control over the way the paint actually looks in the final product. That's been left to chance. And again, analogously, um, that's the way it is with words. You chose, or your subconscious sort of chose these words based on your associations with them, but then you got you just step back as the writer and see the poem that happened to be placed here on this piece of paper that you're writing on, right? And so I, that sort of approach reminds me of this mindscape where all these ideas just exist and you sort of wander around and find one or find the other. Now, I'm not going to go into the idea of the mindscape, which actually has a really interesting scholastic interpretation. I'll put a link to that. Phaser wrote about that in a way that I think is pretty exciting. Um, but returning to the poetry, <laughs> um, what interests me about this approach to poetry that, you know, a very prominent American poet is espousing is that it's 
very impressionist. So the idea of the poet is not as the creator of the work, but the discoverer of the work, right? It's sort of he's, his mindscape is human experience and you just find these aspects of experience and try to emotionally and emotively and subconsciously communicate those experiences to the other people who will presumably read this poem. And my question is, what does this do to human agency or the idea of agency as a part of human creativity? Um, so it seems as though he's saying that it's better or, you know, obviously he's chosen this process as opposed to others, prioritizing it over them. And in that choice, it seems to be saying to me that the best way to create art is to find it, not to choose it. And that limits human agency and creativity in a way that I don't really know that I'm comfortable with. It's it's reducing the human's act of creation to simply happening upon something. Like you might find a new form of butterfly, but I mean, we credit you with its discovery, but in no way did you make this thing. You just were like, hey, look, there's a butterfly. It's purple and weird and green. And I've never seen one like that. And everyone else is like, oh my gosh, I've also never seen one like it. But it's not as though, I mean, you get to name it because you saw it first, but it's not as though you've done anything, right? There's no act here. And I think that is the sort of actionless process which this approach to poetry assumes. It, it pre... I guess presumes it is a better word that I can't think of right now. Presupposes? I don't know, maybe that one. Um, so then after I was thinking about all of that, I was thinking about other ways in which people have viewed art. And because of who I am, I'm now switching sources, if you can't tell from my paper rustling, haha. Um, I began thinking about the sort of medieval theories of aesthetics, which are something that I love reading about. And there's a really... I mean, good summary article that I'm going to link to, I guess, on the little description page of this. Um, but there's a couple interesting ideas which I have highlighted in the printed version that I made of the article. Um, but it's about how we can view beauty and participate in beauty and create beauty, which is what I would argue is what art is really about. And it's it's not necessarily something... I mean, there is, I mean, not, not saying there isn't such a thing as found beauty, you know, clearly art, oh, everyone has such a difficult relationship with art as art as like an imitation. You can read Plato on that. He's super distrustful of it, hates the whole idea, except maybe for education. But even then, honestly, you could do it wrong and make it things worse. But then you get to someone like Aristotle, who's like, well, art might be okay. There is catharsis. We could actually have some positive aspects to listening to tragedy or poetry. But then the more sort of Catholic things get in the Middle Ages, the more people are excited about art. And I, I think that's really significant, obviously. Um, but what I wanted to point out was the people, oh, hang on, I guess, 
what I wanted to point out is the way that we think about beauty directly affects the way that we think about art and our relationship to it and whether or not we can make it in a significant way or whether we're just discovering it. And so when we are thinking about imitation, like different types of creation, right? This is where I'm going to kind of draw on St. Augustine in a very general way. So obviously St. Augustine distinguishes between types of creation, the creation of God from nothing and the creation of artists from materials is what he calls it. But it's, it's an important and it's an important distinction that we need to think about saying that the way we create as humans is substantial, is a different sort of thing, right? From the way that Catholics would argue that God made the world and the way that God works as creator, but still in a significant way, we are allowed to participate in his creation, right? By our, in our ability to make stuff. And this applies to so many different um, areas of human life, but art in particular, you get to make stuff and you get to think of a vision, you get to gather materials together and you get to put that vision out into the world and when you do that correctly you are participating in the creation the act of creation in a very special way and so Augustine also has a lot of interesting ideas he talks mostly about music in terms of beauty and art but that's kind of what I'm drawing off of his De Musica um, but so he says that there are some aspects of art, like rhythm, for example, which are only discoverable. He says that rhythm, because it's based on numbers, is based on the eternal truths, which we couldn't invent. We had to discover. We discovered mathematics in a way that we did, you know, not necessarily discover um, new words, which you could invent in a language, say, and you can just sort of have this idea or have you know, call something and it catches on. And that's a different sort of invention or discovery from the way that we've discovered math, which always was the same. And you really can't do that much to change it. So he says that because rhythm is something based on math, that's something we discover, right? But um, the basis, so the basis of music is rhythm, but then there are other things in it that we could sort of invent slash discover different modes, right? Um, but then in that, we can discover and invent in a sort of united way beauty through elements, like adding elements like equality, proportion, order, unity. He's really big into talking about unity as an element to beauty. Um, and so he says that there is a way in which we as humans can set things in order, put them all in their own place. And that's what, how we can make them beautiful. And that's, I think, how he would view the artist. The artist is someone who can perceive, who finds the underlying truths here, finds the truths about rhythm or about proportion or I don't know, whatever one you want to pick, and is able to organize the, the things in the world, whether that's sound in music or rocks in sculpture, or, you know, paint in art, and organize these things in a way that corresponds with those underlying truths, which you can't change, right? And I think that's that's the difference between what Jericho Brown would say about poetry and what I would say about it. He's saying that you find these things and they kind of are, and there is an element in which you're finding something greater, but I would say that's the underlying truth. That's the thing that you find, but then it's up to you to 
organize and order the words of the poem or the lines or the form or whatever aspect of the poem you're thinking about to order it in correspondence with that truth and communicating it to others so they can also perceive it right you can't perceive a truth for someone else and that's the mysterious thing about teaching or about art i can't transfer my understanding of the periodic table into your head i can explain it I can show it in different ways, but you have to perceive it. Your own intellect has to reach out and grasp it. And that's what a poet is doing. That's why I think um, so in the, so many of the classical discussions of art, like in Aristotle or Plato, they always are like, well, art is fine for teaching because teaching is in that way, almost like an art. So what the poet is doing is he is organizing all of these thoughts and these words and these lines in a way that will communicate, make plain the truth so that the reader can perceive it on his or her own. And that's, I think, the relationship between the poet and the poem and the reader and the poem. But the poet, in the sense that he chooses how the lines should be ordered and purposefully thinks through how best to communicate this truth, has a level of agency which is hidden or denied in this concept of found poetry, right? You don't, you make, you perceive the truth outside you, but then you, as the poet, choose how it's communicated. You don't just stumble across this great communication method, which will just find everything and make it the way you want. So that, hmm, I'm trying to think of a way to wrap up because I feel like it's been a long time. Um, let me see what else in my notes was like super exciting that I actually wanted to say because as usual, even though I have notes, I digressed and I was on a tangent for most of that. Actually, that was a very good thought. Look at what I wrote down here. <laughs> I did this one day ago, honestly, one day and I already forget these things. Um, I did say that there is one interesting element that in what um, Jericho Brown was saying and he pointed out the the subtext of words and it, their context and their different relationships to each person. Like, you know, the different reactions or associations that you might have with words and how that will affect your reading of the poem, whether that's, um, he was using it in terms of, I think he used the word nappy, like older people might think of that in as a diaper, younger people would think of that as like a texture or a slang word, or like the words have this life which changes and can make people have very, very different associations based on them. And so you, his, the one great thing about thinking about words and the sort of method of finding them, it does, it does make you aware of the different associations of words. But I think that's something that applies even more strongly to my opinion <laughs> and the case that the artist is choosing specifically to order these things based on, you know, leading someone to that perception of the higher truth. So that is, I guess, the last thing that I would say. But thank you for listening. That is all I have for today. And I will hopefully be talking to you again next time if I have not scared you away with all my weird and strange ranting. <laughs> oh yeah, also obviously, if you want to give me any ideas or be like, hey, Catherine, talk about something else, email hardlyflowering at gmail.com. <laughs>